Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the Roots Report podcast presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have singer, songwriter, keyboardist, composer, and producer Rod Argent. Rod is a member of the band The Zombies and Argent. He will be performing with The Zombies when they bring their Life is a Merry-Go-Round tour to the Narrows Center for the Arts on May 1st. Hello, is that John Fuzek? Rod Argent here, John. How are you? All right, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good, thank you. Yeah. Are you in the UK right now? In the UK, just getting ready for our first live playing, apart from a, a live thing at Abbey Road that we did a live a live concert uh, stream from Abbey Road that we did um, about uh, six months ago. Get, getting ready for the first touring uh, concerts for... Um, two and a half years wow. so it's uh you know it's a little bit of a, a funny feeling really but uh, re- you know really looking forward to it but we've got to get over there first of all i've got a um i've got to due to um american restrictions i've got to take uh, a covid test on friday and then when we get over there i've got to take another one before going on the cruise that we're that we're doing and playing on and then another one as we come back, you know. So we're all just crossing our fingers that nobody's got it when we actually take the test on Friday. So that's the first hurdle. <laughs> well, hopefully you don't. Nobody has it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I keep seeing stuff, I, I, you know, every now and then. I mean, things are getting better, but every, every now and then I keep seeing a... Um... Somebody in a tour is popped positive for a, for a COVID test and they have to rearrange everything again. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it's happened so many times, things like that. I mean, none of us have had to do that because of COVID so far. But two of the guys have recently, I, I think one of them is still um, infected with COVID, although he's coming right to the end of it. And, and I'm sure by Friday he'll be free. So the, the test should be negative. I just hope we're all negative because the thing is now, infectious, even though it seems to be milder in terms of, of, of how people are uh, experiencing it. But it just seems to be so infectious that sometimes, you know, you get it and you've got absolutely no knowledge that you've got it. Right. Um, you know, so you you have to worry about that as well, I guess. But, I mean, you know, it's the same for everybody out there trying to do it. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough time. It really is tough, so... Yeah. And, you know, and you don't want to get it because you're in an older demographic that it could be really dangerous for you to get it, too. Well, that's the thing. You know, that's the thing you always worry about, even though, yeah, I mean, because Colin and I are the two oldest guys in the band, um, you know, and we're going to be 76 when we start the tour. And we're going to be 77 uh, when we come over to America for the second time this year. I saw your itinerary. You're touring for like a full year. I know. We are indeed. That's like (laughs) ambitious. I mean, I got tired just looking at your schedule. (laughs) Well, it makes me tired just looking at it. But at the same time, the thing is that we've um, we've just finished a, a new album which I'm really, really excited about. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, I do write most of the songs. I honestly think they're some of the best songs I've ever written. And, and may, maybe some of that is enthusiasm because it's a project that we've just recently been working on. But I really do believe that. Um, and I can't wait for the album to be released. It's going to be mastered on uh, April the 12th, I think, um, by a great mastering engineer in, in New York that we particularly wanted to do it and has done one or two things for us before. And, uh, you know, so it will be great start incorporating some of those new new things um on tour as well it'd just be very exciting to do that yeah i i saw you on your last tour in 2018 and okay i was you know i 
I've always liked the zombies. I've always liked the songs that I've heard. And when I saw your concert, I was really impressed because I I knew more than I thought I did. And your, <laughs> your band was so amazing. I was just like blown away how, how much I liked the show because, you know, when you go to a show, I wasn't really sure when I went to the show because, you know, you know, the three or four songs that were popular on the radio. And then you're like, well, yeah. I, I, you know, always apprehensive about hearing the rest of them and wondering what they're going to be like. But I was really yeah. impressed as to how much I actually knew more than those songs and, and how good the stuff that I didn't know was. It was a very enjoyable show. Well, it's great to hear that, John. Thank you. And we, we do we do get that response from people. And, and, and the one thing that knocked me out still, because really the only reason that when Colin and I got back together again in, around the year 2000, we, we, we didn't do it to try get get a buck here and there. We, we, we honestly did it because we still wanted to create things. And, and, and we're still doing it for the same reasons as we were doing when we were 18 years old. Nothing of that has changed. And I think it's the only profession you can do that in, I think. And it's, it's, it, it's, so, it's such a privilege to be able to be energised by going through that same process and getting excited about new things, along with very, very happily playing anything from our back catalogue. We, we'll, we will definitely do that, and we, we, we've never stopped doing that. But what's so, such a knockout is that we can do, say, something like Time of the Season, which always goes down terrifically well, you know, and usually it's a standing ovation after that. But then we, we might well follow that with a couple of tracks that nobody's heard because they're from a forthcoming album. And people react just as enthusiastically to that. And, and, and that, that's such a great feeling, and it's so rejuvenating. And, and, you know, it's such a joy to be able to be at this advanced age, but still getting all, all that energy back from the audience as well. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a gas, really. Well, you've been doing this since 1961, right? <laughs> yes. That's, that's the year I was born. <laughs> so wow, you've, you've been doing it for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry this is the only thing you've known for your, the whole of your life. <laughs> Well, it, you know, I read I read a lot of information about the zombies yesterday, and yeah. you 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 won a contest. I mean, you were at the uh, at a St Albans school where you and uh, some of the other guys got together, but then you won a contest yeah. and you got signed, and your first record was "She's Not There." That's right. I mean, the thing was that I I was I, I went to I went to St Albans school. You're quite right, and I saw somebody playing guitar in a folk club there. Didn't know him, but. Uh, he became a, a big friend, obviously, um, and asked him if he wanted to be in a band. And within two weeks, I, I managed somehow to get a band together. And I met Colin on the first day of rehearsal. And, and I was going to be the singer. Colin was going to be a uh, rhythm guitarist because he'd been introduced to me by a, a good friend of mine who said, oh, I know a guy at school who, who, who plays guitar and uh, sings a bit. And I said, well, bring him along, you know. So it was just happenstance, really. I mean, we, we started off, we thought we sounded pretty good. We were borrowing all of my cousin Jim Rodford, who was in the Kinks for 15 years on their biggest selling al uh, records and albums. And uh, he was four years older than me. And he loaned us all the gear from his fledgling band that he had. Wow. That, that were one of the first electric bands in the whole of the south of England. And I was completely knocked out with what I heard. I was 11 years old when I heard that. Hmm. And I thought, as soon as I'm old enough, I have to be in a band. So when I was 15, saw this guy play, went up to my mate 
who was building a bass guitar. He was the only guy ever to leave the band at that point. But then he, he said, told me about Colin, who was a friend of his at school. So he came along. Anyway, borrowed all Jim's gear, and we thought we sounded pretty hot. Although Jim later said, when he first heard us, he thought, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but he later, you know, joined us in the band uh, for uh, most of our second inc- incarnation until he sadly passed away. Yeah, but, I think I uh, think he was with you when I saw him because he's the one who fell, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, John. And yeah, so, I think I saw him just a few weeks before I, he fell. I think that was... That, yeah, that, 2018 would have been his last tour. Right, absolutely. right, yeah. I, I saw that show and then I remember hearing not too long after that show that he fell and died, which was really sad. Oh, man, I can't tell well, he, you. He, he's been a mentor all my life. Well, he's your cousin you know, too, isn't he? He's my cousin. He introduced me to rock and roll music by playing me Elvis singing Hound Dog when I was 11 years old. Turned my whole world around because at that time I only liked classical music and then I then I heard Elvis singing Hound Dog. You know, to my parents' horror, um, for, for <laughs> six months, I didn't want to hear anything but the rawest rock and roll I could lay my hands on. You know, all those early Sun records and the very early RCA records. And I still think his voice on those first three years was magical. And I've still got his records on my jukebox here at home from that time. After that, I, I didn't really to what he was doing but very first three years just wonderful so uh, I sang a little bit and we played a couple of instrumentals on this first rehearsal then we had a break and I wandered over to a beaten up old piano that was there and played Nutlocker by B. Bumble and the Singers on the piano and Colin came racing over to me and said oh man he said you've got to play piano in the band <laughs> he said I can't believe that and I said, no, 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 it's not that sort of band. You know, this is, this is a guitar band. Um, and I was really confused, you know. But anyway, we had another coffee break about half an hour later. And Colin picked up an acoustic guitar and started singing the Ricky Nelson song. And I thought he sounded absolutely superb. And I went up to him and said, look, OK, I'll play piano. You'll be lead singer. And, and so we all moved around that one chair in the first in the first um, rehearsal session. And, and and, and we then rehearsed for about six months without playing a gig. And, you know, very gradually got got our act together a little bit. And then very shortly, I mean, we, we built up our very first gig. We played in a dance band interval uh, at a rugby club and to about 10 people. Um, <laughs> within, within a year and a half, they had to build a marquee on the side of the rugby club. And we had 450 people there that nice. we were playing to. And so we really built up something in St. Albans. And then... It was time to leave school. My masters wanted me to apply to university. I deliberately didn't do it till too late to get in that year. Um, <laughs> and because I desperately wanted to turn professional uh, in the band. I mean, I was the only one that felt at that point who felt that absolutely strongly about it. Although everyone would have loved to have done it. Um, anyway, you're quite right. We, we won this beat competition. We beat Jim's band in the final. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, which was, uh, which was sort of, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, it, was, it was quite amusing. And then afterwards, there was a knock on our dressing room door. And this guy came in and said, oh, my name's Dick Rowe. I'm the head of Decca Records. He said, I, I would love you to make a single w- with Decca. And we thought, fantastic. And then, so uh, the guy that was going to produce us, who was a friend of Chris White, was our first producer. He said, you know, you guys could always write something. The rest of the guys didn't really even hear that. But Chris and I went away 
And She's Not There was really the... For years, I said it was the second song I ever wrote, but in fact, it was the third. What surfaced was I'd, I'd written very, very early songs when the Beatles first came out in the UK in 62. And, and I wrote a song that was very, very Beatly. And Jim's band actually went to a, a top recording studio and recorded it. Hmm. And, and, the, and the master tapes don't exist now, but the, a cassette of them, of what they made, does exist and did exist. Um, and so it, it surfaced very, very much later. But anyway, she's not there. I went away and wrote she's not there. And with the naivety and ignorance of youth, I just thought, well, you know, it's going to uh, it's gonna sound great with Colin singing lead on it and harmonies are going to sound great. It's going to sound great in the recording studio. It's going to come out and be a big hit. <laughs> and unbelievably, it was. And, and, and it went to number one in Cashbox, which was equivalent with Billboard at the time as the, as the top um, industry magazine. And we made the nine o'clock news at home. I knew that because on our first tour in America, I phoned home, which was a, a big, big deal at the time. Right, right. And, um, and I phoned, this was in 1964, and I phoned my mum and she said, you've just been on the nine o'clock news. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I said, no, you're the first band after the Beatles. English band to get a, a number one record with a self-written song, wow. and uh, and I thought, wow, it's you know, it was it was dreamland for us at that point, but it was just naivety as well, and and I think that really works for you when you very very first start because you don't know any of the pitfalls, I and mean, you soon learn them as you go on. And, and we were playing on the Murray the K show with some of our heroes, like um, Benny King, Drifters, Patti LaBelle. Uh, it was. It was it was just fantastic. Well, you guys, uh, you I'm, played on we, Hullabaloo. That was your first TV show, wasn't it? I, I think you're right. I think Hullabaloo probably was. Yeah, and uh, we. We, we've only, we only ever appeared on a handful of TV shows in the States, and it was all mined in those days, uh, lip-synced, you know. Right, right. It was ages before they allowed us to play live on, on, on anything in those days. Mind you, that's probably a good thing, because even though the American TV sound was much better than the UK TV sound, and if you ever appeared live on a UK TV, it was just horrendous, the actual sound they used to get. You know, because the, the sound engineers there just didn't understand rock and roll at all. It was completely beyond them, you know. That that was the beginning of things, and, and that was in 64. And, and Elvis, the guy that had really seemed like a being from another universe to me, when I heard, at 11 years old, when I heard Hound Dog, I thought there's no way of me ever tapping into anything America, not properly, you know. But I later learned in the 90s, way later, I was doing an interview with an Irish DJ and he said, I, I can't believe you didn't know this. Elvis had three of your songs on his jukebox when you were over there on your on your first trip, you know. And I thought, wow, eight years after, just eight years. I mean, eight years to me now, this age, it's, it was like about three weeks, you right, know. Right, right. But in those days, you know, eight years was a, lo a long amount of time. But nevertheless, it was... It was just just dreamland, you know. So it was. Um, I'm I'm so grateful for all that. Well, then you know the band didn't stick around long. You, you guys broke up in '67, but but released yeah. an album in '68, which was your the Odyssey album, which was one of the best yeah. top 100 of uh, Rolling Stone list, I believe. Yes, absolutely, it was indeed. It was on several years on the the uh, Rolling Stone top 100 album list. At one time, it. it it got as, as high as 80, but then, then it was 100 for uh, a few years. It's gone down a bit now, but it's, um, it's still well in the, you know, high. It's probably in the second 100 now of the top 500 albums of all time. And it's been wonderful. And, and the funny thing is that Time of the Season eventually did become 
another number one record for us in Cashbox and number two or three in Billboard. And incredibly, 50 years to the day when Cashbox published their edition with Time of the Season at number one was the day we were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cool. So that was very, very strange. 50 years to the day. Well, you've got a double um, Grammy date to celebrate. Well, absolutely. And, you know, that, that's been fantastic. But even with a number one record at that time, uh, Odyssey, it just cracked the top 100. But, it, you know, not much more than that over there. But these days, it sells more every year and has, has done year in, year out now than it ever did when it first came out. Wow. So... It's it's really extraordinary. It just doesn't stop ever. And it took, and, and it, well, it took a while yeah, for ahead. Hold Your Head, I mean, not Hold Your Head Up, excuse me, for the time of the season. Yeah. It took almost yeah. a year for that to even chart, didn't it? Absolutely, in the way that things could in those days, because things could happen very slowly and gradually climb up the charts in those days. It, that doesn't seem very possible now. Um, but in those days, you, you could. And it was just due to one guy in Idaho. In Boise, Idaho, there was one DJ who loved the record and kept kept on and on playing it. And in an incredibly gradual way, it was like a, a stone in a pond. The, the ripples sort of went out and went out and more people started playing it. And then it suddenly caught fire and started zooming up the chart. Yeah, that and, can't uh, happen now. Know. I mean, everything's so homogenized across the countries, across the world, that... You know, it's just yeah. a handful of songs that make it. You don't have that individual pushing for the song anymore, which is which is a shame because people. You know, I've heard that story many times where a DJ loves a song and plays it and plays it and plays it and is you know responsible for pretty much breaking that artist and just can't happen anymore. It's just so impossible because you don't have somebody that has has even the the voice to do that anymore. You have to have something, I think. Um, certainly. If you, if you write the sort of music that we, that we we do and we, we perform, you have to have something good to spark something off. I mean, even with She's Not There, there was almost no outlet for rock and roll records in those days in, in, in the UK. One of the outlets was a thing called Jukebox Jury, where they played maybe a minute and a half or two minutes of a record. No, no, a minute and a half of a record. And then this panel would would judge it a hit or not. And on the particular week that they played She's Not There, George Harrison was on the show. And record after record, I heard him say, he was never nasty, really, about things, but he'd say, no, I don't really get this. I don't think this has really got much going for it. You know? And then I thought, oh, my God. You know, if we get if we get slandered by a beetle, it's just going to be, you know, I, I can't stand it. But anyway, She's Not There came on, and he absolutely loved it. And he, and he said afterwards, well done, zombies. <laughs> he, said that, he said that was great. And he said, if that's their, and, and I was so knocked out because he said, if that's their real piano player, then he's really good. And I thought, wow, uh, you know, what, uh, and that, that, that one program, I'm sure, tipped it into the charts and then it starts to have a life of its own. And then, of course, once it was hit in the UK, it was taken up by the US because the Beatles were getting hugely popular that year in 64 in, in, in the US. And, and we, we went to number one. But we needed that, that spark. And similarly, with my second band, with Argent, with Hold Your Head Up, it, it was never meant to be a single. It was six minutes long, you know, with a three-minute organ solo. Even, even at that length, one DJ called Alan Freeman each week took the huge chance of playing a six-minute record every week on a Saturday. And it wouldn't stop bubbling under the, the charts, but it never quite entered the charts. And then we went to Holland, and while we were in Holland, the record company, without telling us, chopped out the whole organ solo. <laughs> <laughs> 
and made it sort of three twenty or whatever it was, and it was immediately a hit. So you know, and that, and then of course, once it was a hit in the UK, it became a hit around the world, just like she's not there had. And, and so it's that that spark of good luck. I, I did a. I produced an album for Tanita Tickeran uh, when we lived in my previous house in my little studio. That ended up selling four million albums in Europe, and that almost got lost completely because the first single from it came out, tickled the the top hundred. But over about three weeks, it just gradually fell out of it. And then for some incredible reason, um, Radio One, which was the main radio station uh, for rock and roll at the time, decided to put it on the playlist. And I still to this day don't understand that after being out for several weeks and it just falling away suddenly it was on the playlist and it suddenly caught fire became a big hit became a big hit in europe the album came out got huge plaudits and um went to it she was the biggest selling female artist ever in germany in scandinavia you know it's that spark of luck you know without the one person each time it seems to me certainly in in, in my experience things haven't happened but if you get that catalyst, it can, it, you know, it still has to have its own leg. But if you get that catalyst, it can, it, you know, that's what you need, really. So there's always a dose of luck there, I think, as well. Now, you recorded at Abbey Road Studios for, for yeah. many of your albums. I read that you uh, you used the Mellotron, John Lennon's Mellotron, that they used on Sgt. Pepper. Is that true? It is true. Now, what I, song did we, you use we, that on? We used it on almost the whole album of Odyssey and Oracle. And the, the reason was, we managed to get a deal, because we'd been very unhappy with our... Uh, current producer at the time and we didn't like the way Chris White and I who were the writers in the band didn't like the way our singles were turning out uh, from a production point of view and it was in the air that the band might split up we both said to each other look we've just got to make one album and produce it ourselves because you know even if it really fails we've got to try and get our own ideas of how our songs should sound onto record we, we got a very small budget from a, a new record company which was cbs at the time and uh, they gave us some money we went into abbey road we had to have everything meticulously prepared but because the beatles had just been in because of pet sounds by the beach boys that had been recorded on an eight track john lennon said we have to have an eight-track recording. And, and the guy, the boffins there said, well, there's no eight-track, there's not an eight-track in the country. You know, we don't have any eight-tracks here. But they, but I think John Lennon said, well, sort something out and sort of went home, you know. So when the Beatles came back, they'd stayed up all night or whatever, and they'd worked out a way of slaving two four-tracks, you know, together and, and, and getting an extra couple of tracks, basically. That's how it ended up. So what we do, we go in, record what we meticulously rehearse, and then there was always an extra couple of tracks so we could put a few, a couple of overdubs on. This this was manna from heaven for us because you, you, you could get a bit of spontaneity and spontaneous um, inspiration, hopefully, onto something that you'd worked hard on anyway. And the Mellotron, because they just walked out having finished recording Sergeant Pepper, they were the band in before. They walked out, we walked in. They'd left a lot of their stuff all over the place. Um, John Lennon's Mellotron was there, and without asking him or anything, and, and none of the engineers there seemed to mind, I just jumped on it and put it on uh, many of the tracks on Odyssey and Oracle. And it became a real signature on the album. It wasn't on every track, but it was on, you know, probably a good half of the tracks or more. And uh, and it really became a signature sound and became something that people warmed to very much on that album. And uh, so there's another bit of good fortune, you know, that just happened and that we leapt on. So, so that was the reason. Uh, but it meant that when we did the Odyssey and Oracle stuff live, um, as we did in, in quite a, a few of the states, we had all the original members 
plus our current band, doing the extra overdubbed harmonies. Gary and Sahanaja from Brian Wilson's band, who knew the parts backwards, playing the Mellotron parts that I'd originally played, so that we could really replicate it absolutely exactly what was on the original album. But it was a, it was a wonderful way of expanding, to some degree, the potential of what we had. You know, and I thank John very much for that, but I never get the, I never got the chance to do that in person. <laughs> Did you... I, I saw that you kicked some of your own money in for that recording session because your budget wasn't high enough because you had such a limited budget and you had songwriting royalties that you kicked in money to, to help fund that recording. Is that true? Well, yeah, Chris White and I did that because... We, we were given a £1,000 to record the album. And using Abbey Road and the, and the cost of Abbey Road, even in, in the late 60s, that wasn't very much money at all. It was an incredibly limited budget. And anyway, we, we bought the album in at £1,000, basically, presented it to CBS, who said they loved it. And they said, but you know what? They said, they said stereo is becoming very important now. So you've got to mix it in stereo. Well, firstly... We'd never mixed anything in stereo, so that was a, a just a venture into the unknown for, for for Chris and me. But we said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And they said, but you've run out of money. <laughs> and we said, well, what do you mean? Uh, and they said, well, you've used, used up your budget now, so you'll have to pay for it yourselves. And Chris and I said, oh, my God. And we, we mixed it really, really quickly. And we put £200 of our own money into it uh, and mixed it in stereo. And, and, and that's, that's the true story. I mean, that's, why, that's where the stereo version came from. After you guys broke up, there were, the record company put out fake zombies bands on tour? I don't think it was the record company that put it out. Uh, put them out. Um, I think that because obviously we're not <clears throat> a number one record, we were actually offered huge amounts of money to, to reform and play. But by that time, because we'd actually finished recording the album in 67, and this was 69 by the time time the season was number one hit, because of, uh, of that time, Chris and I had formed a production company and Argent was well on the way to uh, being ready to record their first album. And in fact, I think we were we were just about to record our first album or we might even have started it. Um, and also, Chris and I wanted to produce an album, a solo album for Colin uh, in the way that we heard, the way he should be with strings particularly. And, and so we wanted to record the album that became One Year with him. So we were in a position to be in America, right at the time of Woodstock, as it happened, talking to Clive Davis, and it was the easiest deal you could ever do because we had a number one record that we just produced. We said, we want to have this production company. And, uh, and because we had these projects so far advanced, that's where all our interest was at that point. And it, it just felt cheap to just nix all that, to just cash in on, on a huge payday. That would be looking backwards as far as we were concerned. And we always wanted to be in the, in the business for the right reasons, you know, to keep creating things and keep getting, getting excited about new projects and pushing new boundaries. So that's the reason why we, 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 we didn't accept the office. But when other bands saw the demand that was out there, and the huge amounts of money that we've been offered, they pretended to be the zombies. They became the fake zombies. And and there were several bands out there doing that. I mean, I thought it was quite funny, actually, to be quite honest. But a couple of them were really, really bad, apparently. Oh, that's not good. And, 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 and after one gig, apparently, they were so appalling that this guy walked into the dressing room afterwards and said, you're not the zombies. I said, oh, yes, we are. And this guy said, yeah, I'm Hugh Grundy. And he said... And he said, Hugh Grund is the drummer. He said, you were playing bass. And he said, oh, no, I've just changed. You know, that's what I'm doing now. And this guy pulled out a gun 
appointed oh, at the manager and said, you are not the zombies. And that was the last day anybody ever heard of that band. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. And it was only very recently that we found out that... Um, the, the two of the guys that were later in ZZ Top um, were, uh, were were part of a fake zombie band as well. So that was quite funny as well. Yeah, that must have been. So then, then you moved on to Argent, and you had yeah. um, you hooked up with Russ Ballard on that, and uh, yeah, and he, you know, he wrote. Well, you had Hold Your Head Up, but he wrote God Gave Rock and Roll to You and Liar, and yeah, you, you know, and New York City Groove, which Ace Freely made famous mostly. Yes. And, uh, you know, he worked with America as well and did some stuff. Yeah. What's Rod Ar- I mean, what's Russ Ballard up to these days? Is he still around? I don't know. Oh, he's still, he's on tour at the moment. Oh, is he? Yeah. I, I think he's just started to, he's just gone on tour. He's, he's a lovely guy. He, he still looks great and sings great. He's a great musician. It was, it was a lovely time. I particularly loved the first two albums we did before the hit with Arjun. Well, Lyle was on the first album. But uh, because we recorded it in, in a very new studio, a fledgling studio called Sound Techniques, we were one of the first bands in there to record. The actual sound quality and level on the albums was a little bit small. Um, and it was only, and I absolutely love the first two Argent albums, actually, particularly the first one. It feels like a, an absolutely smooth transition from the zombies. And I remember Colin hearing it and being totally blown away with it. But it had this slightly small sound. But about maybe 10 years ago, uh, Sony put out a, a box set, a five-album box set um, of Argent. And because of modern mastering techniques, with multi-band compression, and you know, so you can you can you can um, boost up the bass frequencies, the the mid frequencies, the top frequencies all separately. They got the sound to be at a level where it could really physically compete with the modern stuff that's out there. And it was a revelation to me because I thought, oh God, if, if we'd have had that at the time, those al- those first two albums would definitely have been hit. And I think that's a real shame. I, that's the reason why we left Sound Hit techniques and went back to abbey road actually to get a bigger sound and then on that third album we had hold your head up uh, which became a, a big worldwide hit of course but it, uh, I, I thought that was a great shame with the first two argent albums because i think they are really really good and if they're mastered properly now unfortunately uh, sony discontinued the, the the five album box set oh, and i think a that's a real shame because it sounded sounded brilliant um but with modern mastering technique, you know, those things could be done again. And, and I think that the first two Argent albums, it would be great to ha- have them released and, uh, and pushed again because I, I think the actual substance, substance of what's on there is great. So after Argent, you went on to do some session work with Gary Moore, Phil Collins, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, and yeah. you, you even played the piano on Who Are You with The Who? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that I previously to that, Roger Daltrey had got in touch with me and asked me to be on his album One of the Boys, and I played on the whole album of that. One oh, of did, you play, did you play um, uh, Avenging Annie, the piano on that? I probably did. I can't remember what, what's on the album now, but I played on the whole album Well, then you One play, of the Boys. I'm sure you played yeah, because a friend of mine wrote that song. Oh, wow! Andy, okay. Pratt, Andy Pratt's a friend of mine, and he, he's the one who had a hit originally with that song. And Roger, oh, no. Roger covered it on that album. Okay. Well, um, I, I, I did the, the solo album with, with Roger. And then um, a few weeks later, I got the call saying, would you, would you come and, and record the Who's next album? So 
uh, the, who are you album, basically. So I went along there, and actually I put a month's side for that, but even though they were great in the studio, The Who, and they didn't take a long time recording when we actually got down to recording, because there was a lot of political stuff going on at the time, they were always ensconced in meetings upstairs. And some, and some of the, in the end, you know, we didn't spend as much time in the studio actually recording as I wanted. And then I'd, I'd already booked in the, the Andrew Lloyd Webber album, Variations, which became a number one album in the UK with Gary Moore, with John Heisman and Coliseum uh, and Barbara Thompson playing on it and, Ju- and Julian Lloyd Webber um, playing cello. That became a number one album and, and I committed to doing it. And I, I said to Pete, I've got to leave next week, Pete, because that, you know it's the end of the month. And he said, oh, what album would you rather be on? I said, it's nothing to do with that. I, I'm committed to, to playing. You know, and I can't, I can't let people down, you know, because I've, I've agreed to do it. And so, in the end, I only played on three tracks on the, on the Who Are You album. I actually played on Love Is Coming Down, which I, there's not a credit for me on that. In the end, that's me playing piano on that. And I played on the, um, played synth on one of the tracks as well. Can't remember. It was the, not, the John Entwistle track, whatever it was. And I played on Who Are You as well. So that they were the three tracks that I played on on that album. But I should have been on the whole thing, but it just didn't work out that way. So then then you went on, uh, you played in Ringo's band as well. Yeah, in 2006. It was such a gasp. Those, ba- those bands are always, I've seen a couple of those shows and he has another one coming up. I, I unfortunately didn't see the tour when you played, but I've seen a couple of those shows and they are a lot of fun and you get to play your own songs too. You do indeed. And, and it gave me a chance to, there's a, there's a really... I mean, they made a video of the show that was recorded at the Mohegan Sun, like a YouTube thing that that was recently posted on, on Facebook or YouTube. Oh, on Facebook. It, it came up on our Facebook, and it's got about 41,000 views on it. And it's me singing, She's Not There. And it was great for me to be able to sing my own songs, actually. And I, and I had a gas doing that. I, I, I really had a ball doing it. It was great. Uh, but playing with Ringo was really, was really great. He, he got, you know, a little bit nervous about his own playing in later years. I don't understand why. And he would always have another fantastic drummer playing with him. Well, he had Zach playing with him too, didn't he, for a while? He had Sheila E playing with him oh, that's, on the tour that I... Yeah, that was the tour you were on. Yeah. And he used to have um, Zach, his son Zachary, play drums a few times too. Who apparently is fantastic, mm. yeah. Um, but the thing is, I always remember one night, there's something about Ringo's groove that is just so lovely to play to. And there was one night when I'd never wished Sheila harm in a million million years, you know, but (laughs) it was a really, really hot night and we were playing. And I'd launched into my Hold Your Head Up solo, I think, or or it might even have been the She's Not There solo, I can't remember. I think it was the Hold Your Head Up solo, which goes on for about six minutes and uh, on stage live, you know. And suddenly I thought, this is feeling absolutely beautiful you know it's it's and i really felt like i could do anything and it and, I, and you know anything would come off at the end of it i, I sort of turned around and smiled at ringo and i didn't see sheila and and sheila because of the heat she passed out really and, and ringo was forced to just play by himself you know wow. for, for that thing and and sheila is a wonderful drummer and percussionist she's just fantastic and, and and it was great hearing them play together but there is something about ringo's groove that is very special and, and he sounds like nobody else and and it was it was just great to play with him because you know the beatles just tore our worlds apart right. when, when we first met them 
as they did so many people. You you and um, Colin got together in 2004, and that's what to do a, a record on your of two like a solo record together, right? A record yeah, of just the two indeed. of you, and that's what mm -hmm. led to the reinvigoration of the Zombies. Yes, and you've recorded yeah. you've recorded like nine albums since then. Oh, I don't know if we recorded nine albums since then. We've recorded about four, I think. Oh, I, uh, I saw your list, and I, I counted nine, so I might be wrong, but my my. Oh well, name. I mean, there might have been like an album put out of a a couple of live shows that we yeah, did. Yeah, maybe that's it. I'm, I'm not sort of counting those, but judo albums. There's probably about four, I think. And and, and the great thing is that the last album that we did. I still got that hunger. I, unbelievably, we were on tour, and I think it was 2016 we were on tour, and we got a call. Uh, it was a call for us, and and I said, "Well, who is it?" And they said, "It's Billboard." I said, "Wow, okay." So I, I pitched out. I said, "Hi," and they said, "We just wanted you to know that for the first time in 50 years, as the Zombies, you have an album in the top 100 album sales chart." And and I thought, "Wow." That's fantastic. And it really sort of felt validation of what we'd felt over the previous couple of years, things really starting to go in an upward curve. And of course, that finished with, in 2019, um, us being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. During that time that we started to tour America again and having a ball doing it, our audiences really went up stratospherically. You know, we, we started off when Colin and I first came over we, we were subsidising it ourselves, but we just started doing it again. When we played down south, we often played... I remember playing a gig in Georgia to about 12 people. Really? I'll tell you what, we played, wow. we played, we played, we played Georgia now. You know, we get packed houses. With, with the zombies, well, particularly... And I remember with Argent, we never really cracked the audiences in the south for some reason. But And I, and I always remember when we started with the zombies, that was the case. And then we did a tour, and I said to Colin, oh, God, we've got the southern leg of the trip coming up now. You know, the weather's going to be great, and, and the people are, lo are lovely, but the audiences, are, you know, it's only going to be a few people come along. And to our amazement, everywhere was packed out. So that was a real sea change. And, you know, things have really started to grow. And, and it feels so great to be at this age and, and, and to have experienced a, a complete upward curve for about the last eight years or maybe 10 years now. It, you know, it's so nice, so so gratifying to see that. Yeah, you've you actually put out more albums since the zombies reformed than you did yeah. before when you in the 60s well we've just finished one um, you know and i'm i'm so knocked out with it at the moment i can't wait for it to be to be mastered and to come out it won't be out in time for this tour but uh, we've got a second u.s tour as i know that you've seen john yeah. that you know uh, for the, the, where we're playing canada as well right right and i'm really i'm really hoping that it'll be released by by that time because it would be great to get out there and, and um and try and try and push that with, with live stuff as well i've got a few questions that some folks have asked me to ask you uh -huh. someone wants to know how he feels about being an influence on kiss <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, they they love the song, and and they picked, when when I heard it, I thought, oh well, this is a this is a real copy. Except at the end, they didn't all do all the cascading harmonies that I loved that we did on the on the very last choruses, you know, of of the long version of God Gave Rock and Roll to You that we did. But apart from that, they, you know, it's very much a a carbon copy of of, of the song. It, it's interesting that song, you know, because when Rush first presented it to the band. It was it was like a very straightforward rock and roll song. It sort of went God gave rock and roll to you know in that sort of tempo, you know sort of gone bap bap bap. 
And then I remember suggesting, as, as we all used to when we went to rehearsal with the band, you know, whether it was my songs or Russ's songs, you know, people were always throwing ideas. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And I suggested putting it into half time, making it slower, heavier beat sort of thing. And so we, and then, you know, we put in suggestions for slightly altering the chord here and there. And, and uh, I remember the, the genesis of that song. I'm really thinking it, it was lovely to play. And um, it was, yeah, it was flattering when, when Kiss did it, really. And it, and it ended up in a couple of movies, I think, didn't it? And it yeah. became a big hit. Many places in the world became a big hit. The thing about the zombies that I was very impressed with in the, the live zombies that I saw is the harmonies are amazing. Excellent. Oh, I'm glad you think so. Yeah, Thank your, you. your harmonies, your live harmonies were great. I was really impressed by the live harmony and of course your organ oh, solo i can't you can't beat an organ solo but that i mean <laughs> i know i love i love organ solos you don't really hear a lot of organ solos these days and and you do a great organ solo live well you you have no choice when you come to <laughs> well that's a good thing for me because i like it and if oh, nobody okay. else likes it i'd rather hear an organ solo than a drum solo so <laughs> well i'm i'm relieved to hear that <laughs> So uh, somebody else wanted to know, what was your favorite part of writing for television? Oh, well, really, it was just the challenge for a while of doing it. I got fed up with it after a while because I, I, I got, you know, I'm too selfish. I wanted to some of my own songs together again and get them out there and get them recorded, etc., etc. But uh, I did enjoy it very much for a while. And it was just a challenge of something different. And, and it, it got me, because I'm a totally self-taught musician, it, it gave me the chance to start writing orchestrally uh, you know for for string sections etc and that's something that i still do now uh, for instance on the new new album we've got just a small string section it's um a five-piece string section on three three of the songs on the new album so it's quite an intimate thing it's not like the one of the first solo albums that colin and i did where i wanted to hear him with a, a large string section i did all the arrangements on that but, but this one is a, a more intimate sort of string um a, a smaller thing you know which can be just as biting and just as exciting, I think. So, you know, it, it opened avenues to me to, because uh, I've always loved many different sorts of music, and I've always loved classical music as well. And you, re you recorded a classical album yourself, right? I did, yeah, because I've got a, a dear friend who's a classical uh, orchestral musician. He said to me, w when I stopped producing other artists, I, I, I said, I've really had enough for a while of doing that. Uh, and, and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I want to take a year just to start thinking about some solo things again or whatever. He said, well, why don't you do a classical album? I said, I can't do that. He said, well, listen, I've heard you half play so many things. Why don't you do some real work in inverted commas? And, and so I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some of my favorite pieces, whether they're simple or incredibly difficult, not make that a, a yardstick, and I'm going to practice three hours a day for a year and see where I am. And I did that and I recorded the classical album and I got some really lovely feedback on it from some from, from some classical musicians actually. Um, and so I was I was knocked out to actually do that. I mean I can't play any of the stuff now. <laughs> well I could play a, a couple of them. But you have to you have to keep that idiom together. Right. And you have to rehearse, you have to practice in that idiom uh, to be able to continue to play those things. I still play a few things for my own pleasure, you know. But I, I I don't put the hours in that would bring me up to the standard that that I that I'd want that, that I think I achieved mostly on that on that solo album. But I was very proud of doing it. One another person wants to know what do you think about the garage band ethic that led to punk rock and the the do it yourself wave that it's kind of made artists less valuable do you what do you think about that i i think the garage band 
ethic is great. It's essential. And, and for instance, uh, even when, for instance, one of our huge supporters in the UK is Paul Weller. And his favourite album of all time is, is constantly being, he's constantly putting out there that it's obviously an oracle. And he even did that in the days of the jam, said that. Uh, and I couldn't believe that at the time because there was this high energy punk thing. But I thought some of their records were great. And I could see the, the line back into the early Beatles thing. Um, even on their very first records, actually. And and I remember Dave Grohl saying, listen, anyone out there that wants to play, just get together with a few friends, go into a garage and suck. And just, <laughs> and just go in there until things start to happen. And, and then eventually, he said, that really is the way to get everything together. And I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, that's how we started. You know, we, 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 we went into our, our version of a garage. In fact, we did rehearse into, in a garage for about three months um, at somebody's house, you know, to get our early stuff together. And we were in love with rock and roll. And when you're that age, you know, that energy that, that you put into those things and that learning together is in, absolutely invaluable. And I think you should do that. And do you know what? You can even go back to someone that's revered as, say, Duke Ellington. And I know that when he started... His first band, the Washingtonians, were, were just because he had a few mates and they got together and they did their version of a garage band. And, and some of those guys became seminal jazz figures in the early 20s, you know. But, but he, you know, so many people start that way with new movements of things. And, and I, think, I think that's a great ethic, actually. I, I, and I, I mean, it was a lot, of, a lot of punk music I didn't enjoy at all. So I didn't think it had any soul. But I think that something like the early jam records did have a lot of soul and, and a huge amount of excitement. And I love them. So, you know, with, with reservation, uh, I, I, lo I, I love the, the, the garage band ethic and particularly the way that Dave Grohl described it. Well, the thing is that people don't understand is you really have to suck really badly to get good. That's what people don't understand is people think that you, you get good right away, but you have to suck, make a lot of mistakes, and be corrected in order to learn how to do things the right way. If you come out of the gates sounding really good, you're not going to really develop, and you need to make a lot of mistakes and suck to, to get really good. Also, a lot of best rock and roll, and I'm using rock and roll in the widest sense, has, has, uh, has always happened because people have learned from nothing and they've learned by playing together and, and gradually evolving something that has a real groove or uh, has a, a real soul rather than going the academic route. And I've got nothing against colleges and things like that. They're great. But, you know, if you're taught things as opposed to finding out yourself and discovering and getting excited and make, making something really work in your own terms because it's actual learning and discovery as you're writing and playing. You get, you get a, a sort of excitement that, that, that doesn't come in any other way. And you can be a wonderful academically trained musician, and that can be wonderful too. But, you know, there is something about the great groundbreaking popular music that's always had that garage band element, that's that element of people sucking until they're learning how to evolve together and make something very special together. I, I thank you very much. It's been a really nice, it's been an honor talking to you. I enjoy your music and I look forward to seeing you and hearing the music once again. And uh, hopefully there's a great crowd because it, you put on a great show and uh, I appreciate all the time you've taken. Thanks so much, John. All right, well, take care. Thanks. Oh, thank you, mate. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. 
Okie dokie. Thanks to Rod Argent for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. The Zombies will bring their Life is a Merry-Go-Round tour to the Narrow Center for the Arts on May 1st. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, The Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you.